I wonder whether the GDPR will last in its current form. It's right to say that data protection can be an enabler for your business goals and can help you achieve what you want to in an ethical and Mm -hmm. compliant way. But I always wonder why that's not happening on a on a bigger scale you know what what is this conflict and will it ever be resolved or does one is one side going to have to change are you ready to know what you don't know about privacy pros then you're in the right place welcome to the privacy pros academy podcast by kzient privacy experts the podcast to launch progress and excel your career as a privacy pro hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy Discover fascinating insights from leading global privacy professionals. And hear real stories and top tips from the people who've been where you want to get to. We're an official IAPP training partner. We've trained people in over 137 countries and counties. So, whether you're thinking about starting a career in data privacy, or you're an experienced professional, this is the podcast for you. and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I am the podcast host. With me today as my co-host is Jamal Ahmed, Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at Asian Privacy Experts. Jamal is an astute and influential privacy consultant, strategist, board advisor and Fellow of Information Privacy. He's a charismatic leader, progressive thinker and innovator in the privacy sector who directs complex global privacy programs. He's a sought-after commentator, contributing to the BBC, ITV News, Euronews, Talk Radio, The Independent, and The Guardian, amongst others. Hi, Jamal. Good morning, Jamila. And what, what's coming up for the Academy in 2023, Jamal? We've got so much planned for this year, but the most exciting thing is we were reviewing uh, last year at the end of the year, and we realised that the success rate that we had with people who come and do the IEPP training with us is actually over 93%, which is phenomenal when you look at what the average industry stat mm-hmm. is, which is around 50%. So we're like, so this proven methodology we've got, our, you know, C5 formula is actually working. And we're so confident about it this year that we're offering guarantees. So if you're thinking about getting an IEPP uh, certification and you want guaranteed pass, we guarantee you that if you come and do our program and you follow the methodology, you will pass first time. And if you don't, not only will we retrain you for free, but we're also going to pay for your exam voucher as well. Because that's how confident we are in our methodology. Overall, we've got 100% pass rate. 93% of people that trained with us last year, hundreds of people across the world passed first time. And we want to help you uh, make sure you pass first time as well without any risk, without any hassle. And we want to make it easy peasy for everyone to thrive. Great. That sounds amazing. So if you're listening and that sounds like something you want to do, you want to take advantage of the guarantee, then please do get in touch. So we've got a really interesting podcast coming up. We'll, I'll be introducing our guest in a minute, but we'll be talking about um, UK data protection reforms, data protection from the perspective of a non-practitioner, maybe some uh, memorable client stories and some advice for people in the privacy sector. So that's what's coming up and I'll introduce our guest today. Um, so our guest is Robert Bateman, and he's a respected voice on data protection, privacy and security law. He built his profile creating in-depth reports on legislation, compliance, guidance, documents for organisations and news articles about the latest sectoral developments worldwide. Robert's passion for privacy and security began while studying for a postgraduate law degree. His dissertation on the compatibility of the UK's Data Protection Act 
with the European Convention on Human Rights won the DMH Stallard Prize for Best Research Project. Since then, Robert has worked with privacy and security-focused tech firms and startups, creating detailed guidance and policy documents to help organizations comply with their data protection and security compliance obligations. A passionate advocate for digital rights, Robert has also worked as a journalist reporting on the latest developments in digital privacy, tech policy and state surveillance. Hi, Robert. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Jamila. Hi, Jamal. Thanks for having me. Hey, Robert. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. I've been following you on LinkedIn. Uh, you were putting some great uh, material out there. And you know what, Robert? One of the things you're going to have to give us a tip on is how to write great hooks, because your hooks always had me reading your articles, interested in what you had to say, and I kept asking for more. And now you've gone to GRC World Forums, and you're putting out some great content there. And not only are you putting out some great content, but... When I watch you hosting people on the panel, you ask some really good questions that really gets to the heart of the issue. So um, I'm so interested to see what you have to share with us on this podcast today. Well, thanks so much, Jamal. Very uh, excited to be talking to you too. I've been following you as well on LinkedIn for a long time and uh, always been very impressed by your, your output and, and your business. So yeah, great to be here. Thank you, Robert. You're very kind. So Robert, why privacy in the first place? I think I mentioned before we started the podcast, I saw on your LinkedIn, you studied humanistic psychotherapeutic counselling. So how did you go from that to privacy? Yeah, so that was a uh, previous life. I did a postgraduate degree in, in therapeutic counselling and mm -hmm. I liked it, but I was always a bit more interested in the theory than the practice. And so I then got a job at the University of Brighton, and I was mm -hmm. representing students who had been accused of academic misconduct or who wanted to appeal university decisions. And so there was a kind of counselling element to that because almost all of them were quite upset. But I was most interested in the procedural side of things. Uh, overturning mm -hmm. university decisions was a real thrill because, you know, it's this big institution and uh, I could sometimes make a real difference for these students. So I ended up taking a law degree and uh, I was very interested in EU law, although it was one of the more difficult and complicated modules. And as you mentioned in your intro, I did my research project on the immigration exemption to the UK Data Protection Act. And that's what really sparked my interest in this area. It's a very ugly and badly written piece of law. Basically, the immigration exemption uh, let the government deny subject access requests if complying with them would prejudice the maintenance of effective immigration controls. So that's very broad and kind of racist uh, provision. And I argued that it violated the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, the government said when they were trying to push this through, they would only use it occasionally as a kind of exception in, in rare cases. But we found out that they actually denied 72% of subject access requests using this provision. Uh, so that's pretty much denying a lot of people, you know, migrants, sometimes in quite vulnerable situations, access to their data mm -hmm. for legal claims and so on. And uh, a couple of charities, the Open Rights Group and um, the Three Million, took this to court and they did win eventually on different grounds than I argued in my research project. But um, it was uh, very interesting to look into either way. So then I decided not to pursue a legal career. Uh, it just looked like too much stress, to be honest. I was only 
31, 32 at the time, but um, I felt I was too old to get into it with the long hours, you know, getting a training contract and so on. So I started writing about the protection on the side initially for service providers, and they wanted articles on every single aspect of the GDPR, the CCPA, other laws worldwide. And so I soon found myself knowing a lot about data protection and privacy. I started doing some work as well as a journalist for a US privacy publication, reaching out to people at NGOs and activist groups and regulators for comment. Got to know quite a few people in the community and it's a really great community, as, as you know. And then I started my current job at GRC World Forums, where I do a lot of interviewing. I can write about what I want. And I've ended up interviewing some pretty well-known figures in the field. Max Trems, for example, a couple of times, Johnny Ryans. And there's a lot of bad content and information out there about data protection. Uh, a lot of misunderstandings about the law. Uh, I do make mistakes, of course, but I try to be as accurate and careful as possible in my writing. And it normally stands up to scrutiny. I can write, you know, 3,000 words about a single paragraph or article in a law or 500 words about, uh, you know, a 100-page DPA judgment. And people really get a kick out of my stuff. And yeah, I've kind of found my, my place in the community, even though I don't practice uh, compliance or, or data protection law. That, that's super interesting, Robert, because I know from the people I'm in touch with and everyone else that you're very much respected in the community. And I think it's because you've been contributing a lot of the uh, articles and a lot of the knowledge there. And like you say, because your work seems to be on the better side of things, it's, it's usually accurate. But you explain things in a way that actually makes sense and people can understand. What I want to ask you is for um, anyone who's listening right now, who's thinking of, you know, um, creating their personal brand, getting their branding out there, trying to contribute something useful. What top tips do you have on how they can avoid some of the pitfalls and how they can really maximize their chances of putting useful content out there that people actually want to uh, engage with? I think talk to the experts as much as you can, people who are practicing, if, if you're not, and just be very careful because, you know, data protection people will jump on any error or misrepresentation of the law because this is, I mean, it's not exactly a niche area anymore, but a lot of people have been around for a long time and they've seen a lot of mistakes and it's very easy to make a mistake on this stuff. EU law. I've always found is written in quite an oblique sort of way. It's quite easy to misinterpret. And there's a lot of disagreement about those, how to interpret it. So try and couch what you're saying a bit and, and talk to people who really have, have worked on this stuff and, and they're experts and be as thorough as you can. It's better to write 500 words that are accurate than, you know, 3,000 that are 50% accurate. Just just try and narrow down what you're saying as much as you can and also make it catchy and interesting. You know, like you said, Jamar, I always try to get a hook there. Think about the broader implications of a judgment. For example, a company is told, they can't do something under data protection law. Think about what that means for other companies doing similar things. Think about whether people will try to avoid it. 
this 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 decision whether there are ways around it that, that that might be found or you know think about enforcement as well because the reality is that a lot of countries lack a stringent enforcement regime what are the, what are the implications of that are people going to do stuff anyway even if they're not supposed to so think about the social and and, and business implications of of decisions and, and developments. Wow, some super hot tips there, uh, Robert. So you mentioned, and forgive me if I'm misunderstanding, so you mentioned that the data protection laws can be open to interpretation. So does that mean they're not quite fit for purpose? Or do you think there still needs to be a lot of work going into reforming the data protection laws? Does that make sense? It does. I think that's a very important question, given that I don't know a lot about other areas of law, but once you understand data protection law, you see how often it's flouted. And I wonder if that says more about the law itself and how it fits into society, or whether it's just that people are generally unethical and, uh, you know, put, put, put the law to one side for their own benefit. I think there's the answer is probably somewhere in between the two, to be honest. Um, we look at some of the biggest companies in the world being told that their business models are not compatible with data protection law, which is happening a lot recently. You know, Meta suffered a big blow to its business model in Europe. I can always see both sides to everything. It's almost an annoying trait of mine, to be honest. I'd rather be more emphatic on one side or the other sometimes. But um I wonder whether the GDPR will will last in its current form, whether regulators will keep making hardline interpretations or whether it will be more liberally interpreted uh, in future because a lot of businesses are coming up against data protection law. And I know it's it's right to say that data protection can be an enabler for your business goals and can help you achieve what you want to in, a, in an ethical and compliant way. But I always wonder why that's not happening on a on a bigger scale. You know, what what is this conflict and will it ever be resolved or does one is one side going to have to change between the kind of more pervasive uh, tech models, at least, of, of of doing business and and the data protection law that seeks to protect people's privacy. Do you think then that the data protection laws are almost a bit too idealistic and not as pragmatic as would be necessary? I think that one thing people say about the GDPR, for example, not the only data protection law in town, but... Uh, arguably the most important is that it tries to be a law of everything and it, mm. it pervades into so many aspects of people's lives and, and and the business world so for example we find now dpas are having to refer to contract law in a way that some people think is not really within their their powers i'm not sure i agree on that but it is interesting that they are reaching into other areas of of law that aren't you know strictly within their entirely within their domain so because it's so broad and because processing personal data you know it sounds like quite a technical thing but actually we all do it all the time uh it can be as simple as typing someone's name out you know it's 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 something that every business does 
pretty much every day. And so it touches so many people mm. that we, uh, I think perhaps we can't understand. We can't, we can't imagine that they will all understand why, why it's important and understand their obligations. You know, a leisure center registering new customers or a, a sole trader doing construction work that collects email addresses might not understand why they have to be subject to the GDPR or what the implications are. Mm. And there aren't many laws that have that big an, a, an impact on so many people. So I think that's kind of one of the places that the difficulty comes from. That's super insightful, Robert. Um, I'm on the opposite side. I think I, what I love most about the GDPR is how broad it is and how it touches on every aspect. Because if you just go into an isolated silo, then you can just focus on that. But there's so much stuff that's going to happen around that that could still interfere and impact on it. And what I love as a practitioner uh, is that it touches everything else so that I can go and speak to other areas of the business and make sure that everything is taken and considered holistically. So what we're trying to protect, what we're trying to achieve actually gets done without it being just this siloed effort and something happens around it, then that negates everything you've done or has some kind of detrimental effect. The other thing, uh, Jamila, going back to your earlier question about the interpretation is, look, here's the thing, like when we have to think about the actual process of how these laws come about. So people sitting behind walls, they think, oh, we've got this great idea. Let's put something together. And when you're thinking about an idea, you can't think of every single eventuality. You can't think of how other people might interpret it or construe it or how it's going to apply in every single industry, in every single scenario for every single type of business. And we still don't even know all of the different types of processing uh, businesses are going to engage in. And as we see the introduction of uh, AI and other innovative technology, facial recognition, emotional recognition, this isn't something lawmakers could take in and put it all in one place. And that's why we have the courts there to help us interpret where there is a difference of opinion. But for the most part, the GDPR is designed to be broad uh, rather than prescriptive. So it gives everyone that flexibility to be able to understand how does this apply to you in the context and all they really want you to do is do what's reasonable to protect people's personal information. And the reason they want people to feel that the information is protected is we live in the digital age now, and data is a very big part of economic growth and prosperity. And if people are very worried about their data, they're unlikely to share that data. They're unlikely to go and make purchases. They're unlikely to give it up to um, companies. And if companies don't get that data, then they can't do business and we can't move forward as a society. So by making everybody feel that their data is going to be protected by holding uh, organizations to account when they do collect and process that information. It puts everyone at ease. Yes, I don't have to think twice about giving up my data to any European company or anyone who's in scope of GDPR because I know it's going to be protected and therefore people are more likely to engage in more transactions. That's, that's the way I see it. What do you think about that, Rob? That's great. And I agree with everything you say there, Jamal. And uh, I think that that flexibility and breadth of the law is a strength. And, you know, I, I know the GDPR better than any other law, of course. So it's my favorite in, in that sense. And I think there's, it's a very elegant law in many ways because it does allow that flexibility and it does allow, you know, the risk based approach has become a bit of a dirty word in the context of international transfers. But in other areas, it does allow for that, um, doing what's reasonable in the context, given the state of the art, as they put it. That means it is ready to take on new technologies. I, I've been thinking a lot about AI recently, as many people have. And even though it's, you know, it was developed, well, it's, it's 
coming up to seven years old now as a piece of law that has been through the, the, the institutions, so much of what's happening with AI is, is covered by the GDPR. You've got the data minimization that applies to the collection of people's data um, for training models. You've got subject rights that are, I think there's a practical difficulty there sometimes in exercising those rights against AI models. But in theory, at least, that, that that's covered. And you've got the automated decision-making, which I think is a really great uh, provision of the GDPR that's really coming into its own now as technology advances. So it does, it does have that kind of future proof. Well, is it hard to call it future proof because we don't know what's down the road, but it's, it's standing the test of time so far, I think, uh, because of that breadth and flexibility that, that you highlight there. Rob, you are head of content at GRC World Forums. What does your role entail? So we run events about, uh, I would call it risk in general. So mm-hmm. that covers data protection and privacy, also security, other areas like financial crime, ESG, compliance, you know, per se. And I come up with the ideas for agendas, for example. So if you're watching a discussion at one of our events, it's likely that the initial idea came from me drawing up the agendas, keeping on top of what's happening as the kind of, um, well, my, as you know, my main area is data protection, but I've learned a lot about other areas too. Uh, financial crime in particular, uh, ESG as well has been interesting. So keeping on top of what's happening, trying to keep up to date. I think because I am not a a practitioner, I have more time to really research and keep an eye on developments. So uh, there's, there's that side of things too, just being the, the kind of knowledgeable person in in the room, interviewing people, uh, moderating panels uh, for example, both in person and online. I really enjoy doing that. Occasionally chipping in with my own opinion, but generally, <laughs> you know, just trying to create an interesting discussion. And uh, writing, I've got pretty much free reign to cover what I want. Um, so that's good. I, I, I've been trying to find time to do more content writing recently, and uh, that's been going well. And uh, research. For, for clients sometimes and writing reports and so on. So quite broad, but um, yeah. we're focused on GRC, as they call it. Not my favourite uh, term, governance <laughs> and compliance, with perhaps an unfair bias towards data protection, but also interested in other areas too, and also how they intersect with privacy. Because mm-hmm. financial crime, for example... Speaking to people in financial crime compliance, they are all about the data. They just want as much data as possible for a very laudable purpose, you know, cr- preventing money laundering and spotting fraud and exploitation and so on. But it's a very different attitude. Uh, they want data, 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 transparency is everything. Uh, whereas privacy people take the opposite approach. Generally, things should not be out in the open unless there's a good reason. And those two things come into conflict. So it's been really interesting to see how those sectors and, and other sectors have, have contrasted. 
Rob, one of the things I find most or a lot of members of our Privacy Pros Academy community struggle with is staying up to date with the key developments and being informed, but not just knowing, oh, this happened, but actually, what does that mean to us in our practice? Uh, what tips or what sources uh, would you recommend for somebody who is in that position, who's struggling, but still wants to stay on top of stuff? Obviously, follow Robert on LinkedIn and make sure you, you sign up to... Uh, ProofSec, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. so the ProofSec content that you're, you, you'll be creating uh, and putting out there. But in addition to that, what kind of what are some of your favorite sources and how do you find that you manage to stay on top of all of these interesting developments? That's a great question. And perhaps my answer won't be as great because Twitter is my absolute, <laughs> it's an absolute goldmine for discussions. I think discussions are so important because reading the news article can only take you so far. And that's what's great, I think, about events too, because you get five experts around the table, ask them to discuss a topic, you're going to get some interesting insights that you won't mm -hmm. get just from reading the, the law. So Twitter and LinkedIn, I mean, I, I confess those have been really great sources of information for me. And also you can kind of test stuff, what, you know, ask questions, what do people think of this, put something out there and see how people respond. And then you know, hone your your views on stuff. So I'd say those, grcworldforums.com uh, is, is very good. A quick plug there for my own stuff, you know, because it's, I think the most beneficial thing for me has been trying to integrate myself a bit into the community. And there's a lot of really interesting people and people are so passionate about the 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 sector and it's it's has so many implications as we've said and there's all the kind of you can follow along even with the most high profile cases uh, against meta and big tech and so on but if you look at the discussion around the decisions you'll see how it relates to other other companies and other other areas and the real implications as well for people's rights so i personally like to read discussions about stuff um, rather than just sticking to the decisions themselves. As for getting those decisions and, and legal developments, I mean, European Data Protection Board website, Irish Data Protection Commission, turn on a few uh, notifications on, on Twitter when, when they tweet out and you'll get stuff uh, before anyone else and you can, you can perhaps give an early opinion on stuff. And the mainstream press is is getting better, I think. We can't expect them to give a very detailed examination of stuff. Natasha Lomas at TechCrunch is one of my favourite journalists in this area because she really understands the law. And um, the, there's some other great writers out there too. To, so find your favourites and always make sure you're contributing to the discussion, asking questions. Great. I love it. So I think my key takeaway from what you said, Rob, there is it's not just about reading what's happened or reading the update. It's actually focusing on the discussions and seeing the insights that are coming from experts discussing this thing and getting involved, asking questions. That's really going to lead to that in-depth understanding of why this new development matters or why this case uh, or this enforcement action matters and how it then applies into your own um, business or your own uh, organization. Uh, or your clients, whoever you're serving. 
So that's great. And then uh, you said Twitter is, is probably your favorite source for those discussions. And the easiest thing we can do is just find some of those key accounts and just turn on the notifications. And that way we won't miss any of those uh, interesting discussions. Yeah, I, I, I'm on I Reddit think, uh, mainly, not for privacy things. But yeah, there's a privacy subreddit, there's security and cybersecurity subreddits. And you get a range of opinions from around the world and some are better than others. But it, it's, it's, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, there's a group of people on on Reddit that are really helpful to those with uh, GPR-related questions. As for Twitter, I mean, it's people refer to it as the hell site, obviously. Whenever I stray outside my (laughs) data protection bubble, I'm very disturbed by (laughs) what I find, and we'll see how long it lasts. But yeah, I have found it really useful. And LinkedIn, of course. Rob, um, so one of the things you mentioned earlier um, as part of your role at GRC is you do lots of, uh, you host lots of discussions, uh, both online and offline. And one of the things I really liked, uh, or one of the things I really like when you're hosting is what you mentioned earlier is that you can see both sides. Uh, so you you ask very balanced questions. Uh, and that that's basically um, what I love most about the work that you put out. It's always very balanced. It's never too biased towards one side or the other. On that note of interviews and discussion, what's your most memorable panel or what's the most memorable interview that you've had? And tell us why. Well, the first time I interviewed uh, Max Schrems was, was very memorable. He is very lively and kind of charismatic figure. He is quite, well, I mean, he's friendly, but he's also very passionate, you might say. And very holds very strong views and has a long history of dealing with the Irish Data Protection Commission. And if you can get him to mm. have a bit of a rant about that, it becomes quite colourful and quite expletive <laughs> laden. But um, you know, is he? He's a good speaker, and he appreciates difficult questions. I think. The attitude towards him in the community has soured a little bit in recent years on some, on some fronts because a lot of people aren't happy about the international data transfer issue. I obviously don't have to deal with, you know, conducting transfer impact assessments and stuff. So for me, the more complicated it is, the, the more interesting it is. So I, I really enjoyed interviewing him. I had some great panels too. Uh, just recently, actually, I, I thought up uh, an idea. What uh, could Meta really pull out of Europe? Uh, because they threatened to a few times. or well, not threatened, but said, you know, we, we won't be able to operate in the EU anymore. And so I had a great discussion about that with um with, I won't name them just in case I forget someone, but uh, some, <laughs> some great, uh, a very colourful discussion about that. Just taking that one small kind of sentence in one of Facebook's annual reports and expanding it out into a big discussion about international data transfers, the kind of data exploitative business models and so on. Uh, so that's a, a, a panel that I remember quite fondly from just a few months ago at ProofSec Global. Sounds super interesting. And yes, I, I always love listening to uh, Max Rums, especially when you're interviewing him. And uh, I'm a big fan. And I, I, I'm completely against anyone who 
has any ill towards uh, Macron because of what he's done, because I think what he's done is absolutely super important. When you look at the reason behind what he's done and how he's trying to protect people and stand up for our rights, and his, how many people have a job and how many people have had contracts extended and how many people are making such a comfortable income doing international based transfers and they all have Max Schrems to thank. So when <laughs> people are complaining, oh, we have to do these stuff, I just don't get it. I, I was like, you're so ungrateful, people. Like, you, you really have no idea. Uh, and, and if someone's listening to this, I am having a rant because we have <laughs> to thank people like Max Schrems, Johnny Ryan. These people are actually going out there, doing something about it. What, what are the rest of us doing? Sitting there talking about how rubbish something is. When was the last time we went out and we actually made a stand and stood up for humanity and did something and managed to bring about this kind of change? Everyone thinks, oh, I can't do anything. One person can't do anything. I'm too small. Max Schrems is living proof that it just takes one person to start the movement. And yes, of course, he's got backing from the NYOB and other people. But every single one of us is capable of creating change. And if you see there is some kind of oppression, if you see there is some kind of unjust around you, then I believe it's our own irresponsibility to do everything we can to make sure that we can correct it. And that's exactly what Max Schrems has done. So I think he should be celebrated. I think he should be commended. And I think we should all do whatever we can to support the work he does and the work that NYOB does uh, as much as we can, especially for privacy pros, because some of us have made careers out of the stuff that Max Schrems has been doing. We need that. You know, we need people really pushing at the the edge of the, the law and, and uncovering these you know these if you if you listen to him talk about the u.s surveillance program you can't help but think well that's pretty bad you know what the, that needs challenging whether or not a challenge like that succeeds we need people pushing at the extremes and and making those you know uncovering those difficult areas and it might be a messy process but as you say people have Built careers on trying to clean up the the, the mess created. So yes, I, I I agree. I don't think it's fair to, you know, criticise him. And he's 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 well, it's fair to criticise anyone, of course. But fundamentally, he's got a good point, and it's his right to make it. It, it has created a difficult situation for international data transfers, but that needs to resolve itself. It's not it's not his fault that there's a problem there. He's just exposed the problem. There's going to be a round three of lots more fun coming up with the new developments between the EU and the US. And uh, I, I don't know how much you've looked into this, Rob, but I, I'm with Mac Frim on this. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like it's making a whole joke out of the whole process of holding uh, processes to account. There's a desk in the president's office that gets a rubber stamp regardless, and there's no more information one way or the other. That's yeah, that is the it? most... Uh... What are your views on that? There's a few arguments that they make about the agreement and why it's no good under EU law. And that is the strongest one, I think. Lack of information about the process when surveillance has occurred. For me, the most important thing is rule of law and holding, being able to hold the government to account. That's something I feel quite strongly about. And if you're given such limited information about your case, then you can't make a meaningful challenge to it. So that is, I think, will be Noib's uh, strongest argument when, I don't say if, I say when they, they challenge the, the, the decision in court, if it, if it gets through. Other areas, I think the arguments are, are weaker. The, the, the fact that it's an executive order, I don't think is necessarily going to be an issue. But, uh, yeah, fundamentally that's, that that response that you get from from the executive about whether or not surveillance has taken place 
that is far too vague to, to stand up to scrutiny in a proper democratic country. So yeah, I, I agree with you certainly on that point. The way we normally end the podcast um, is we like to ask the guest if they have a question for Jamal. It can be anything. You can ask him whatever you like about privacy, about not privacy. Can I ask two? One of them might be quite short. Sure. Um, so longer one first, Jamal. You've you know you've built a pretty successful venture doing something that at the time was probably relatively niche. Uh, when you first started, did you have any kind of doubts about what you were doing? Did you face any any barriers getting your company off the ground? And uh, how how did you overcome overcome those challenges? Yeah, absolutely. And are we talking about the consultancy side or are we talking about the training side? Well, I was thinking about the training side, actually, because I think that's slightly more more niche, if you see what I mean. It's, there's, there's not that many data protection training companies out there, certification training companies. So perhaps focus on that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was very challenging because the thing is, training is very different to dealing with businesses. Business to business, you understand there's a process in place. There's lots of logical stuff with training, especially when you're talking directly to individuals. Is it's all about the actual emotions behind why people want certain things. So people don't buy training because they want to get a certification. They want to buy the result that certification enables them to do. And it took me a long time to really understand and tap into what is it that actually people want as a result rather than focusing on just helping people to pass the exam. The thing, the, the main reason I got into the training actually is because when I was doing training and I trained with so many different companies on so many different things, um, so all to do with data privacy, is I found the same poor approach everyone was taking. You get as many people into a classroom as you can. Um, you hire a contractor to come and you hire a contractor who's usually a lawyer um, who sits in the office, doesn't actually get involved in the operations, to come and read some slides out. They're gone. When you have follow-up questions, no one's there to support you. There's no real passion. There's no real actual understanding of how to apply this other than this is what you need to know to pass the exam, write it down and go and pass the exam. And I found that really frustrating. And I thought that, you know, we, there, there needs to be something better. And from delivering the training to our B2B clients, general awareness, going and focusing on specific stuff, one of the things I realized was people actually love when you break things down and make it easy peasy. And... On LinkedIn, from my friends, from people in the privacy sector, they're always asking me about help with certification exams, how to prepare, how to revise. And I used to do these sessions and someone said to me, you know, you should go out there and you should help more people. Like you, you need to do this stuff because the way you've just broken stuff down, the way you've just explained it, the discussions we've just had, that's something that I can't find anywhere. And this is the kind of things that I've been craving for. So I was like, you know what, this is a great idea. So we said, decided we're going to transform the way uh, IEPP certification training and other data privacy is delivered. And what we've come up with is something that works for me. And what we focus on is this five-step uh, approach. So first thing is we need clarity. There's no point memorizing what the GDPR means. When a client, when, uh, when someone in your organization asks you a question, there's no point regurgitating the article because anyone can do that. It's on Google. They need you to break it down for them and make sure that you understand it. The only way you'll be able to do that is if you have clarity yourself in what does this actually mean. So we focus on clarity. And then it's all about confidence. Too many people in the industry suffer from imposter syndrome and self-doubt. And it's because they struggle to understand how to elaborate what they've understood. Oftentimes, they've self-studied, so they don't really understand it. And it's just something they've been thrown in when GDPR came around 2016, 2017, 2018. And nobody actually gave them the time or the opportunity to invest 
in learning and really mastering this. So I wanted to help people overcome that because when you have confidence challenges, especially at work, which is what you're doing for like 40 plus hours a week, that can then lead to really uh, related problems in other areas of people's lives. So when you can help someone with esteem and you can give them that boost, it's life-changing and it's transformational. And I found that through data privacy training, we can do that. So we focus on clarity. I focus on confidence, credibility. Credibility doesn't just come from getting four letters after your name, the CIPPE or the CIPM or whatever it is. It actually comes from being able to hold conversations and convince and persuade people why what you're saying is in line with their business objectives and how you're there to offer pragmatic solutions rather than you have to dot the I here and cross the T there. So giving people that credibility, now it gets buy-in from the stakeholders. One of the other things most people complain about that I hear is nobody respects them, nobody pays attention to them. They're seen as the blocker in the organization. And the way to overcome that is to focus on credibility by making sure you go and you're offering pragmatic solutions, you're being part of those conversations, and they actually see how you're there to help them rather than hinder them. Then comes competency. So if you understand all of these things, if you have the clarity, you have the confidence, you have the credibility, you will be a world-class uh, person and you will be competent and you will have clients chasing you to say, come and work with us or come and do this contract with us. And the final thing, uh, Robert, you summarize this really well, is community. Without the discussions, without insights from different people from different industries and from all over the world, we're very limited in our understanding and application of it. But when you listen to people who have experience for 10 years, five years, even one year, in a completely different industry and how they've applied this certain thing or how they've overcome a certain problem. It's really fascinating and it gives you this really uh, depth and breadth of knowledge, which you now have like a massive toolkit to really go and solve those solutions uh, really pragmatically. Mm. Um, And so putting all of that experience together really helped me to get that academy off the ground. And it was just picking up traction and momentum. So I took on a few students at the beginning. Like we limit all our classes to like nine people, single digits anyway. But initially I started off with batches of three and four and we put them through what I call the accelerator program. And the results just speak for themselves. Every single person that comes through the academy is more than satisfied uh, with what they've got. And that's how we do business. It's mainly through the referral for the people who have actually come through. If you notice, we don't even have a website where we talk about the training programs and stuff. So it's all been through word of mouth and organic. But the most important thing is, is the results that have helped us to compound um, the amount of people that we're helping across the world. I think last year we helped people across 33 countries from all continents. Uh, and, and this year we're looking to help even more people. And the strange thing is, uh, most of our clients right now seem to be based in the US. And these people, they wake up at 3 o'clock or 4 a.m. just to come and spend three days training with me. It's bonkers. I love their commitment and the dedication, but it just shows that the approach that we're taking, people can't get it anywhere else, and they're willing to spend thousands of pounds, wake up at 3, 4 a.m. to be part of the Privacy Pro Academy. And that is, for me, such an honor and a blessing. And I feel like I now have a duty to go out there and do everything I can to serve and help as many people as possible. That's great. I think the the important thing for me is that there is about both the community and also breaking down the knowledge in an accessible way because I did the the COPP last year and I was actually a bit surprised at the level of sort of insight it required. For some reason, I expected it to be about reciting you know, the articles or, you know, which article says this, which, which provision says that. And it really wasn't like that at all. It was quite a nuanced, the questions, I was, I was quite impressed by them. 
in some cases. And they, they were a bit tricky. They were trying to get at what people actually will experience when they're doing the job. And so you really need someone to like, like yourself to, to bring that nuance, I think, to the, to the learning. I think that's probably also the reason why um, it is the gold standard and why so many companies insist is because it tests your application of the law, not your ability to memorize it. And I think uh, that's what particularly impressed you. That's right. Yeah, I did it just so I could, you know, I don't need it for my job, but I did it so I could maybe pull it out if if uh, I needed to. It was a bit different from how I I expected and had seen it portrayed the the CIPPE. And uh, I also do like the way you kind of integrate some personal growth kind of aspects into it, you know, imposter syndrome and so on. I think that's so important to build people's confidence up. I don't know if we had time, but I did also want to ask what Cajun means. I had to come up with a name for a limited company, right? And at the time, so I'm a big fan of continuous development and improvement. And the reason I wanted to leave uh, working for other people and actually do something myself is because I saw that there was a much better way things could be done. And some of the medium-sized businesses, like not your FTSE 100 companies, have massive challenges, but they can't afford the level of expertise they need to be able to really solve those pragmatically. Instead, they're relying on the charlatans and the cowboys who are coming and telling them you need consent for everything and wiping the databases. So Keizen is a Japanese uh, word for continuous improvement or continuous growth. So I just decided to play on Keizen and call it Keizen because when I looked at Keizen, all the websites were gone. All of the main names were gone. There was about 100 companies on the uh, company's house using that word. But when I typed in Keizian, the main name was available. Um, the websites were available. The uh, company's house registration was available. And I was like, okay, it's a very strange word. Nobody knows what it means. So it might stick in people's head. But it's a play on Keizen. I knew that word, actually, the Japanese word. But I didn't make that connection. So there you go. That, that answers my question. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Rob, for being on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for sharing all of your insights and making the time to speak with us today. It's been absolutely awesome spending the last hour with you. And I look forward to seeing you at a GRC World Forum soon. Thanks so much, uh, Jamila and Jamal. It was, it was great. Really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released. Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class Privacy Pro. Please leave us a four or five star review. And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about, please send an email to team at kzient.co.uk. Until next time, peace be with you.